Hey, this is Kelly Lee, and you are listening to In Progress, presented by Clark and Chloe. Alright, so on this inaugural episode of In Progress, our guest is Michael Tam. Now, Mike's been a good friend of mine for a number of years now, and the reason I brought him on the show is because he is just such an interesting and smart individual, um, first and foremost. Um, And the biggest piece of it, I think, is that his story is really interesting and I think really inspiring. You know, growing up in Southern California, going to Midwest for school, coming back, working for Uber during those, what I like to call some of the kind of crazier days, um, and then uh, now being a venture capitalist here in Southern California. He works at Crosscut Ventures, which is one of the largest venture capitalist firms here in Southern California. And honestly, he is just such an interesting guy with such an interesting perspective, super intelligent. Um, But uh, that being said, uh, for those of you out there who don't know what venture capitalists um, do, they go out and essentially figure out what startups they want to invest in and help grow and scale. Um, So when you're talking about Uber or you're talking about um, Lyft or any of those uh, of those startups that are probably on your phone right now um, to to utilize, uh, they are part of people who go in and invest in those companies and uh, essentially hopefully help them grow and succeed. Um, so that being said, I'm going to stop talking. Uh, please enjoy in progress with Michael Tam. This is Kelly Lee with Clark and Chloe. Um, today I am with Mr. Michael Tam. He's been a good friend and, uh, yeah, we're, we're just going to talk about, uh, some stuff and about life and tech and entertainment and, uh, yeah, thanks for joining me. Cool. I'm excited. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So, do you want to give us uh, just like a little background about uh, I don't know, like where you're from, like what you do, where you went to school? Sure. Kind of from LA, went to UCLA for undergrad. Um, what I do today, uh, I work in venture capital, which means we invest in early stage tech startups, and um, that's across different sectors from space tech to transportation to healthcare uh, to enterprise-facing solutions. How, and how did you even, like, you know, let, let's backtrack. Like, when you went to UCLA, um, did you always know you were going to get into the space? Or, or, like, you know, what, what did you even, like, major in it at UCLA? It's yeah. a good question. Um, I really don't like talking about myself, so this is going to go against the grain. <laughs> well, I definitely didn't know. I, I didn't even know about venture capital until I went to um, graduate school. Um, but I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, major in econ. Yeah. Didn't really think about career anything at UCLA. I just was always just a hardworking kind of standard Asian American mentality of wanting to um, make my parents proud. Yeah, and that's kind of been the north star. Um, and you you grew up in SoCal, right? I grew up in SoCal on the east yeah. side, um, Roland Heights specifically. Yeah. Represent. Represent. Six two six. But uh, I got I got my first job when I just summer intern when I was a junior in college and didn't really give it a second thought. It, they uh, wined and dined us, and I took the offer, just thinking it was nice to have a full-time job. Yeah. And then senior year, we just kind of hung out and helped friends recruit. And, and then graduation came, um, and, you know, I, this is personal, but it is significant in my story. My mom got sick. Oh, wow. She had uh, cancer for the second time. And, oh, wow. um, you know, I started my job September. I, st- I took care of her that summer, and uh, the experience of, you know, consulting with these big corporations and taking care of my mom was just a, a, required me to be a little bit more introspective of how I spent my time yeah. and <clears throat> started to get a lot more interested in social entrepreneurship and these ideas of using business and for-profit ideas to make an impact as well. Uh, I was, maybe I was naive at the time, but there were also companies like Tom's and Warby Parker coming up yeah. and I was fascinated by how they were able to build a brand but still able to help people. Mm. So I started exploring that route, that coupled yeah. with the personal things that were going on. Um, and so nights and weekends, I just, 
you know, just started reading and looking for opportunities to kind of side hustle and do yeah. a side hustle with and yeah. happened upon a, a Red Cross photojournalist who wanted to start a condom business that was um, helping empower and um, employ uh, women and children, women and girls in areas with high HIV AIDS prevalence oh, rates. That's right. Yeah. I remember this. Yeah. So uh, the company is called L. It's still going on. Um, yeah. And it's, she's she's doing amazing. She's now added female hygiene as a product. Um, and I think last, actually, I don't even know if I can say this, but she's she's donated a lot of female hygiene products now uh, to India. So she's still oh, like, wow. doing really good things. But I'm really proud to be affiliated with that. But that that was my first exposure. Yeah to entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, everything from negotiating with our manufacturer in Southeast Asia to finding a warehouse to trying to figure out what the FDA compliances were to mm. building the brand, right. um, pitching angel investors. And that got me exposed to tech. Mm -hmm. I came to the conclusion that tech was going to take over the world. Software is eating the world is the cliche or the, you know, whatever the slogan that Mark Andreessen made famous. He's a well-known venture capitalist and Andreessen Horowitz. Yeah. Um, and wanted to figure out a way to get into it. I felt like I was at a disadvantage because I was non-technical. And I also still had an interest in social entrepreneurship. And long story short, um, thought that tech investment banking was the best way for someone with my background to, to get into this world. Yeah. Um, so I went to uh, University of Chicago booth for business school, graduate school. Mm -hmm. uh, they were known for finance. I summered at... Um, a bolt bracket in their tech coverage group, Bank of America Merrill Lynch in Palo Alto, realized that investment banking in tech was not what I thought would get me into tech as a mm -hmm. non-technical person. It was not culturally me. It was looking at a lot more later stage companies in technology, but mm -hmm. um, just not the hybrid of early stage company building and investing in tech that I wanted to do. Yeah, And I also, in business school, started to... Um, learn about this thing called venture capital because I had friends who were going into it. Right. And that was a lot more of my interest, I realized. And so I started to optimize for that. And that meant working a lot with more startups mm. in Chicago and LA. Um, a lot of the feedback I got from folks who were just giving me advice was get more operating experience at a growth company. Mm. Growth company meaning uh, a company that was sort of on a rocket ship and, and um, growing at a, a high clip in, yeah. in tech. And that was kind of it. So I also wanted to come back to LA. And yeah. so I joined Uber um, fall of 2014 after business school. Yeah. Um, and that was, was there for two and a half years. While I was there, I started meeting more people in venture capital, um, started to learn from them, do some projects, nights and weekends again. That side hustle was kind of a theme in my career. Um, and then that's how I ended up at CrossCut, or um, where I am today in early stage venture yeah. capital fund. And how's, how's Uber? Like, I mean, we, we all hear about Uber now, and I feel like, and, you know, maybe you probably saw friend, friends there, but um, compared to when you were there, do you think that, that Uber has changed, in, and it can be anyway, but I, just from a consumer standpoint, actually, yeah. like, it, it, they've definitely marketed as if there's been, like, a, like, you feel like there's been some sort of change in the past few years. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to talk about with that company. It was a great learning experience. Uh, definitely changed the world, in my humble opinion. Um, what I learned from there and what it was like, uh, I learned a lot about just growing a team, um, how marketplaces work. Mm. Um, it My takeaway was Uber was really the first tech company to live in the real offline world. Mm. You know, we have Amazon and Apple. Right. But they operate under such controlled circumstances, meaning yeah. warehouses and your delivery experience. Right. Whereas Uber deals with, I'm running behind to my car because I got caught up with somebody, a friend or a colleague, right. um, you know, hey driver, wait for me. Um, yeah. Or I vomited in the back, like what do I do? Or I got in this mm -hmm. car accident. And so yeah. how do you build a tech solution that scales, that addresses for the millions of data points yeah. that Uber now has to deal with on a daily basis? Right. Um, so I, it's the feat that they've accomplished and continue to accomplish is, you know, it's nothing to balk at. Um, and, you know, there have been growing pains, obviously. Yeah. The company grew way too fast. Yeah. Um, and it's just hard. I think it just also highlights the importance of culture when you grow a team. Yeah. Um, and being, being cognizant of that and operational and technical and cultural debt that can build up if you grow up grow up too fast mm. um, but net net of net net things were super like 
I, I was glad I got the experience. Yeah. Yeah. And what sure. was your role there uh, specifically? I was on operations team, so I ran um, six regions in SoCal yeah. um, outside of LA. So okay. non-core, I guess, regions from Palm Springs to Santa Barbara and then mm. Empire. Um, functionally, that meant um, owning the P&L, um, managing key metrics for the business, uh, having a team on the ground, um, pitching city council uh, on public transit partnerships, mm -hmm. negotiating with the airports in my regions to help like ha have them approve us oh, at airports. So just a um, wow. cross-functional yeah. effort of trying to build Uber's business in my regions. Uber kind of functioned on a on the same principles because they had a lot of the executive team from Amazon come over, mm -hmm. and so they function on that um, two pizza team principle. If you've ever heard of that, uh -huh. just keeping the team small enough that you can uh, just satisfy the hunger of with two pizzas oh got it <laughs> and got so they, it, yeah. they the, the company was pretty autonomous which um was a good learning experience yeah that's really interesting i mean um when you think about uber especially from just even a consumer's point of view you're just thinking like oh I'm, i need uh i need a source of transportation from point a to point b sometimes point c that kind of thing um but it almost sounds like you're essentially running a small business like within a yeah. larger business which uh, I have a lot of background in because <laughs> that, that that's pretty much what I do on a day to day yeah. basis. Would all the issues um, in that region come to you too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you're exactly right. You were running, and that and they structured it this way um, to to allow the company to move fast and be nimble, mm -hmm. and and it was a strategic decision that allowed them to grow um, for better for worse, but grow yeah. a lot faster than competitors in the space. Um, so, so would you have someone like? Like in Palm Springs, like yeah. like a manager like in Palm Springs, yeah, yeah. Like located there too. Yeah, um, I would have folks on the ground, um, emergency situations, whether there was a, uh, you know, an accident or the the law, local law enforcement were involved, mm -hmm. that would be escalated um, to me at the time. Like the companies learned to, and this is kind of goes back to the point about it being the first real tech company living in the real world and right. having a scale. Uh, business practices to address that yeah. um you know that those have continued to evolve but all of that's going on in the back end and, and that's like not to say that that's, that's the unique to uber it's it's probably relevant to all companies but right. um it was just a, on a much more you know by the minute by the mm, second basis yeah, because yeah. there's just you can only imagine how many ongoing rides there are right. globally yeah that's that's insane to me that that sounds amazing and exciting but but scary at the same time because you're you're dependent. There's so it's it's so interesting because so many um, tech companies are whether it's uh, you want to want to look at like a YouTube or whatever else. It's it's a it's a platform and, and like you're delivering content. But when you have the 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 platform side of it and the tech side of it, but then you have all these people who represent Uber, right? Um, all the drivers, all, all those things, all these pieces that potentially could go wrong at any moment, in any second. Um, that's a lot. It sounds like a lot of risk to, to take. Totally. <laughs> it's fun though. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but yeah, there's, that's kind of the risk that, and why so much capital went into the business. Right. Um, and, uh, headcount. I mean, yeah. the busiest nights obviously were New Year's and Halloween. Mm -hmm. And so those yeah. were, we had, you know, you had to anticipate, um, events and have practices in place. Yeah. Uh, you know, even I even had to go to court on behalf of Uber you oh, know, wow. in my regions just yeah. because, like, that's how distributed we were. Like, right. the legal team couldn't go to my regions. And so um, I'm sure they it's changed now, but the yeah. experience was definitely good. And, and people earlier than uh, that were who were there earlier than I was would probably have even, would definitely have mm -hmm. even more, uh, more interesting stories. So, uh, so you're at Uber for a couple of years. And then uh, when did you, when and how and when did you decide to, to kind of take the jump and say, like, all right, I'm going to head into this this uh, VC world now. So I when was um, January 2017, right before Delete Uber, right before shit hit the fan for the company, mm. is how I describe it yeah. to everyone. Um, how was a two-and-a-half-year-long effort on my part of trying to break into a space, venture capital, that historically um, there's just not a lot of seats at the table. Yeah. Not a lot, a lot of opportunities, and so that was uh, a lot of informational interviews with um, investors who were willing to have them with me and make the time. 
um, which I'm always grateful for. Um, it was a lot of just being on Twitter and um, engaging with and reading how folks in startups and investors and operators and founders thought about their um, respective industries yeah. and day-to-day functions. It was reading a lot of long-form bloggers on how they assessed new business models and, and companies. Yeah. Um, and then it was, and this is all in parallel, I guess, and then it was like right. related to those informational interviews, it was just trying to do as many projects as I could nights and weekends again, the side mm-hmm. hustle thing, so I can get more relevant experience. So what's an example of, uh, of like a side hustle project? Um, so there were like there were funds who were willing to uh, give me like diligence work, or uh, I could meet with founders and go to meetings um, because we were, you know, the the job of a the job of a venture investor is to meet with a company, mm-hmm. um, you know, assess that company on a certain set of criteria, yeah, and go and if you think it's potentially a fit for your investment thesis, then yeah. you go and you do some diligence. And that can take the form of a lot of different, you know, tactics um, to arrive at a at an educated hypothesis thesis on, excuse me, on whether the company is going to work out. And so it was do, trying to just gain hands-on experience and do the job before I had the job, so that I could speak to uh, venture capital funds when they were interviewing, um, and just be able to show that. I, you know, I wasn't just all lip service. Like everyone's going to say that they're interested in tech, right? And right. venture and startups. But what did I actually? I wanted to show that I was, because it was interesting. Like right, I really right. did do enjoy it. Right. Um. And and so that that you know I I didn't know if it was going to work out, but uh, you know luckily, um, you know so I got had some fortune on my side. That's awesome. So, you've been there now for what like a year and a half? Or yeah, almost a year and a half. Yeah, yeah. And and how how has it been so far? Um, you know, mm. can you give us a little background into Crosscut? And, sure. So uh, Crosscut, Crosscut Ventures was launched in 2008. Um, it's an early stage venture capital fund based in Venice, California. Um, we're on our fourth fund now. It's 125 million. Um, our fourth fund is 125 million, but across four funds, we're about 225 million um, assets under management. Um, our fourth fund invests in Seed Series A and uh, I use finger quotes often because seed and Series A kind of mean different things for mm-hmm. different people, but yes. um, by market and by by time. Um, but our average check size today is one to two million, um, and we we reserve two hundred percent of that uh, for follow-on investment in that company. Um, sector-wise, we're we're sector agnostic or generalist, so we invest in both consumer and enterprise, and um, we're based in SoCal, but we're. Uh, Probably now a third of our founders are across the country, mm. um, and that's because LA and the SoCal ecosystem is starting to become uh, just a more strategic um, market yeah. for companies that you know either teams are getting more distributed and so they want to move to the area, or mm-hmm. founders want to be headquartered here, yeah. or a New York investor wants the LA um, network and they want to bring in a co-investor that brings that. Got and it. So. Luckily, CrossCut's been around for over, you know, a, a decade now. Yeah. And my partners who have been doing this for 17, 18 years, um, you know, are just recognized um, in the space. And Got so it. it's it's an emerging, it's definitely an emerging ecosystem. It's not Silicon Valley, nor do I think it will ever be. Yeah. Um, but it, it's finding its identity right now. Yeah. And what was, um, you know, being there for a year and a half now, and I'm sure your experiences continue to, like, ever evolve, but... In terms of, uh, let's say, like your first uh, couple months there, you know, what, what was that like? Do you just go and yeah. meet with a ton <laughs> of companies? Like, do you and then like figure out if you know there's any like true potential there and go through that vetting process like you're talking about? And it's um, it's yeah, it's kind of um, drinking from a, what is the cliche? Drinking from a fire hose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As drinking from a fire hose, but it was yeah. in a good way. Um, you go out there, and every week I maybe have. And this hasn't changed from, it's probably evolved, but I, prob- I probably do 30 to 35 meetings a week. And wow. that's investors, founders, yeah. uh, people who are experts in their industry because I might be spending time in that specific industry to right. try to research it. Um, uh, lawyers and potential LPs. LPs are people who give money to venture funds to invest on their behalf. Yeah. Um, 
But when I first started, it was I had it's such an unstructured world, and there are different ways, in my opinion, of being a good uh, venture capital mm. list that um, there's no onboarding. Mm. And we we are a small team. There's four partners and myself currently, yeah, um, and a chief of staff. So there's no structure really. And so uh, the first few months, it was, you know, for example, we funded two companies in the first two months that I was there. One was a, a deep learning company called Deep Current here in LA that automates data entry and it uses neural networks to do so. And so mm -hmm. I, being a non-technical person, had no idea, but I had to spend a lot of time with the founders and do diligence and try to understand whether this was, one, techni technically feasible, and two, what the market and competitive landscape mm -hmm. looked like. And so it was going from that to another company that was building a marketplace for insurance link securities. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you don't know what that means because I definitely didn't know what that meant <laughs> no, either. No idea. Um, but yeah. it's it's this whole world of um, a new competitive business model to reinsurers who insure the portfolios of insurance companies. Wow. And there's also reinsurers <laughs> for reinsurers. My point is, like, you jump from That's one crazy. one sector yeah. to another, right, right. and you try to get smart on it um, to a you know you mitigate risk, and I right, think that's right. a big part of our job. And it, it's uh, so as a result, you're wow. kind of all over the place. That's insane, man. It, but it sounds like it's it's really fun in the sense that you get to literally just kind of like work on all these different um, work with all these different companies in all these different areas. Um, and, yeah, and it really just expands your knowledge and your your. Uh, you hope so. Yeah. <laughs> that's a goal. Yeah. Um, but you you definitely want to be a T. Um, that's how I've been. I've, how I've had it described to me. Yeah. You know, at, at least for us, right? Because every venture fund is different. We invest at the seed stage. So right. what I've learned or what other folks say too is that at the seed stage, you have to be generalist because you're trying to build a diverse portfolio for your LPs to yeah. have a higher chance of making yeah. a return. So that's relevant for us. And therefore, I have to be able to jump from one sector to another. Right. But also, you want kind of want to be an expert in one. Right. Um, but then some funds that are maybe later stage yeah. might only invest in enterprise and yeah, only right. invest in healthcare, for right, example, right. Um, and that's our fintech, and that's an advantage. I think. Yeah. So, like any other industry, there are different ways of running a venture fund and yeah. having your strategy. Would you say this is sometimes a twenty-four-seven job? It could, it could be like you yeah. could you could spend as much time as you want, um, just because you, uh, you know everything from your just random. Not random, but just emails from startups, and you can I can diligence the shit out of one company, right. um, but I have five to ten more in my pipeline that are potentially interesting, right. and so you have to kind of know how to prioritize, and that's personally quite challenging for right. me. Um, so yeah, it, it could definitely be a twenty four seven job for sure, uh, which I, I love, but it, it can get overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Um, would you, how, what advice would you give to, um, to, to people who are starting companies right now in terms of, let's say there's a company out there and they're listening to this right now and they're like, man, we have this great product that we want to get out there. Um, and, and, and we need some, uh, some investment to, to get started. You know, what would your advice be to, to those folks? Well, it depends, right? So I would unpack that first by saying, are you building a lifestyle business versus like, what's the goal of the company that right. you're trying to build? Right. Are you trying to go down the venture route? Because if you are, that's a very specific route in that like the metrics for growth are going to be a lot more um, particular and you need uh, to have a higher rate of growth. Yeah, that, that's actually, that's that's a great distinction. Um, so they're VCs, but then like even before then they're potentially angel investors, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the in angel investor versus versus what, what you guys do. You sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, to answer that question directly, angel investors are individuals, usually high net worth, um, writing everything from a five thousand dollar check to yeah. a fifty, a hundred, hundred and fifty dollar, hundred and fifty k yeah. um, check, and um, they're they're investing at a much earlier stage when you have an idea, you have. Beyond the idea, you have some reason why you are the specific person to do this. Yeah, um, you know, uh, you might have. There's a distinction here, but there's also like the friends and family round. Mm -hmm. um, that's just folks, you know, in your personal network. Right. Angel investors do this uh, professionally, maybe, or do it on the side. But there's some overlap there between mm -hmm. friends and family and angels. But the distinction between angels and and us as uh, quote unquote VCs is that. Is just really the stage. Like mm. angels are investing at a much earlier stage. Got when you've got the idea, maybe you have some 
some proof, like a conversation with the customer or an MVP, minimal viable product of like an existing, you know, mock-up of what you think this could be. Right. Um, and they believe in you. That's like, usually they invest based on belief of the founder. Got it. They invest like you are the right person yeah. to do this. And then once it gets to us, uh, it's a, a little bit more proven out and the risks are a bit more mitigated. Mm -hmm. um, but I think angel investors could also not necessarily have to, you can be an angel investor and not invest in a venture type of business, meaning mm -hmm. that you don't need to, you know, you don't need your investment to go down that venture route. Oh, um, I don't know the angel world that well. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I've never like <laughs> looked up the definition of an angel yeah, investor yeah. on yeah, yeah. dictionary.com. Sure, so I don't sure. know if there are <laughs> angels for non-venture businesses. I'm sure there are. Yeah, and yeah. then they just have, a, it just depends on your risk profile, right? right? You, 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 you could have different return, risk and return preferences. And Got that, it. that determines your strategy. Got it. Do you guys ever, um, with the investments, the investments that, that you guys make, um, it's like percentages, right? Potentially, so like you're investing like two million for how, whatever percent yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of a company, um, and then let's say there is an angel investor, and then they also have a percentage of the company. Does that ever come into play? Yeah. For and, and yeah, like like what? How does that? How does that? How work? does it work? Yeah. yeah so there's yeah. a cap. There's a capitalization table. Cap yeah. table. Um, I think it's capitalization. Pretty sure it's cap. I usually just say cap table. Yeah. Um, and we like for for example, we like to get at least ten to fifteen percent mm -hmm. of um, a company on the initial check. Mm -hmm. And so um, you want it, There's a lot of things at play here, right? There's uh, how much dilution are the founders willing to give up mm -hmm. based on the amount of money that they take and the valuation that that infers. Right. So if they're raising two million on a six pre money valuation, that make gives them an eight million post money valuation, two mm -hmm. plus six. Yeah. So they're then diluting themselves by uh, 25%, two over eight. Yeah. So they're giving up 25% of their company's um, equity mm -hmm. to investors. Yeah. Um, so you can then, so to answer your question, as an angel investor, the more people you fill up on your cap table, the more quote unquote dilution you're giving right. up. Right. Um, and you, you also, for us, you know, there's, there's uh, a rationale behind concentrated ownership, which is what we do, which is why we reserve 200% of our initial check, because we want to be able to buy up on our pro rata, which is mm -hmm. the percentage of what we own for the yeah. next round. So we don't get diluted because yeah. then if you get diluted for us as a venture fund, yeah. then you lose your rights as an investor, mm -hmm. as a major investor and to have influence. Yeah. Whereas angel investors typically don't own that much of the company. Yeah. They really just provide enough money for the founders to get the company off the ground. Yeah. And um, help them out and advise, um, but the founders need to also be incentivized to right. continue to build the company, right. and the employees need to be incentivized to build right. the company. So your option pool needs to be. You, so you essentially need to have enough percentage points of the company's ownership to go around yeah. to keep everyone's interests aligned. Yeah. Um, so that dynamic is always there when you're negotiating um, ownership and the valuation. But then there's also this um, dynamic of how much runway you think the company needs right. based on the milestones that you think the company needs to hit to get right. that next round of funding, right? right? So there's this triangulation of all these factors that go into the right dilution, the right valuation based on what's best for the company because that's yeah. really should be the North Star of yeah. all of the stakeholders here. Right. We're all building toward you know something to build a bigger pie, right. so let's keep the interest aligned. Right. So... That's that's a lot of great information. Now pulling that back to that question of, hey, Mike, I'm this founder out there. I have this product that I created, um, and um, I think with some investment, this could grow into into that level. Um, what what would be the advice you you would give them at, at that point? So going back to the first thing is, yeah. do you think this was? Do you want to go down the venture route or not? Because yeah. yeah. if you don't, there's a whole broad swath of investors you can, you know. Um, find and and would be interested in your business um, and there's nothing wrong with that okay. venture route is uh, a very specific route where in five to seven years at least you can hit a hundred million top line in revenue or a hundred million in users I'm not saying that's like the absolute rule but directionally speaking that's what your goal should be and mm -hmm. if you're not thinking along those lines then it's gonna be a tough trajectory and route to go into venture. Yeah. Um, so I would answer that question first and yeah. at least understand you know, where, you, where you think you're at. If you do want to go down venture after um, figuring that out, 
then I would say um, figure out what you need to build a business. Um, try to look into the market and see you know what it currently exists. Um, and if you're comfortable and you, your thesis is still that you have the opportunity here and you're the right person to do this, um, then I would start go getting and going out and getting the early data points that investors and uh, I would I wouldn't even say investors. I would say third-party stakeholders who you need to convince to join you, whether they be employees, co-founders, or investors. Mm. Start getting those data points to prove and, and allow them to extrapolate that there is an opportunity. Mm. So whether that be getting an early version of your product up and running, if it's uh, I don't know, a marketplace for some sort of service, sure. you're gonna go and find the supply side and demand side of those profiles yeah. and try to drum up transactions. Um, you're going to go to your friends and family and try to get some capital or maybe you have capital yourself. Yeah. Um, but whatever it is, you need to go out and get those proof points because um, without those proof points, you really just have an idea. Yeah. And um, the and there's, all, there's almost some meta signals or indicators in that process by if you go out and you kind of already get this shit done, right. um, that's going to make you look good in the eyes of these third-party stakeholders who are mm -hmm. who are judging you on whether like you're the right person. Right. If you right. just continue to stick with this idea and don't execute, right. It's tough for these stakeholders to kind of follow. Right. There's a lot because it's it's a lot of writing on this. Right. right? So yeah. there's no playbook really, and that's what yeah. makes it hard. But that's also what makes um, it a beautiful thing because if you figure it out, like you did that. Right. Right. And that's that's an amazing. That, I have so much respect for that. Right. Um, and then let's say this this person go, they go and they do all of that and they they come up with this proof of concept. They have some data points, um, they have some information they've been able to extrapolate from that, um, and they come to you. They come to you guys and they're like, "Hey, Mike, we have all this. We have we have this proof. We have this business plan. Like we, we think there's there's traction here." Um, what 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 is the I guess. Uh, for for people who are not in this world of of, of knowing about um, uh, percentages to give up and, and that kind of, that kind of thing, like when you're working with these uh, these startups, do they have someone in there who's usually like whether it's an advisor or whomever can help work out all these right. these details to help to, them. To these deals? Yeah, um, they they could have an advisor. They could have friends who have been through it. They could really the the most formal relationship you can try to get early on is a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So there are, you know, again, if you go down the venture route, there right. are venture capital or venture focused lawyers. Yeah. Um, I think the Cooley or Latham Watkins of the world who mm -hmm. have um, teams that are focused just on this. Interesting. They're expensive, which is why, again, like there's a chicken and egg here, right? Yeah, of yeah, yeah. capital and building yeah. your product. Yeah. And figuring that out is, is the holy grail of being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so... It could be informal advisors, people in your network. It could be lawyers, yeah. Um, and you just kind of, you know, you you bandage together your uh, product yeah. and your uh, back end kind of business yeah. um, to a point where then you can attract these stakeholders, the third party stakeholders I keep referencing, yeah. to help you, you know, get to the next level. Yeah. And then uh, taking kind of a step back into the, the industry of things, um, for you, like we've been hearing about a potential like burst in, in, in the tech bubble, like in any like coming up any any anytime soon. Like what what are your thoughts on on that? Like, oh do man, you think that's it's a big question. It is, it is, man. Just like, uh, but just in general, from what you've been seeing so far, now being especially like a year and a half in a crosscut, just all the people that, that you've met with, and just seeing looking at the industry and, and kind of the trends. Like, what, what what do you think? about this potential burst in the bubble. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a soundbite um, for sure. But yeah, I think there's just more capital coming into the uh, space of investing in tech, which yeah. allows this, whatever you want to call it, the factor is driving a bubble behind the valuations of tech companies, right? Yeah. Uber's a perfect perfect example yeah. of having raised, I don't know, 12, uh, over 10 billion for sure, maybe 11 or 12 yeah. uh, billion dollars of, of, of money. Yeah. And their valuation is, you know, sixty-nine or seventy billion, yeah. um, ex excluding the SoftBank secondary. But that's magnitudes greater than some public companies right now. Yeah. Um, so, I initial thoughts are just, you know, SoftBank's Vision Fund is a big driver of this as a as a specific example. I don't even know how much money they have, but they have a lot of it to really kind of pick. Um, pick a company 
to essentially they're making markets yeah. because they're they're investing in these companies before they go public. Right. Um, so whether it's a bubble or not, I'm not smart enough to say yes, but I definitely know that um, the valuations are getting to a point where it's just um, putting the retail investors, the mom and pop investors like you and me, right. um, at a disadvantage because now there's just that margins continuing continuing to be eaten up by these later stage private investors and companies are um, taking longer to go public right? Um, because it's easier to get capital when you're private right? whereas you have to abide by all the SEC regulations before you go public. Mm -hmm. Of course, as a private company, when as a startup trying to grow at a fast clip, I'm going to take you know, the easier source of capital right? and there's more and more easier sources of capital. right? So that's creating this this quote-unquote bubble, I guess, um, and I don't know what's going to happen. There's just going to be more companies popping up, and there's probably secondaries are starting to become a thing, meaning, I don't know if you know what that means, but like mm -hmm. funds, investors are um, providing liquidity options for, for early employees. So mm -hmm. if I joined Uber 2010, yeah. 2014, a standard vesting schedule for my equities after four years. Yeah. It's 2014, which is four years ago. I've yep. joined until 2010. Yep. And there's no real strong incentive, theoretically speaking, other than the mission, but financially speaking, to keep me at Uber. But I'm locked up at Uber. And you, if mm -hmm. you think about the, um, the rapid increase in the valuation and my stock options, as an example, in that situation, um, I have no way of getting that money because mm -hmm. there's no liquidity options. The company hasn't gone public. Yeah. It just keeps staying private and there's no secondary option. There's no market for me to sell my options to get cash, right. cold hard cash for it. Right. So there's more funds now providing that secondary Got it. vehicle Got it. for me to sell my stock options. Yeah. Um, so that's happening. Um, but you know, it'd be great to have more of these, public com these private tech companies go public uh, just to relieve some of the liquidity pressures. Because as venture funds, we have pressures from our LPs for liquidity. Right. They gave us this money for a time horizon of seven to ten years or yeah. whatever, and they want that return. Right. So sure. they've been waiting. Yeah. So now about Michael Tam. I mean, you know, where, like, what, what is it that that you want to do? Do you want to stay in the VC world? Do you think for like another, you know, five ten years, or you know, what what's what's kind of your goal? Yeah, I'd like to yeah. if I can if I can. If they'll let me, <laughs> if, uh, you know, it's the tough thing about venture is that the feedback loop in this world, meaning um, for me to figure out whether I'm good at it, I have to wait until the companies that I've, I've picked and funded mm -hmm. um, or hit their next funding milestone and raise that next round and yeah. then raise that next round and then, and then um, hit that point of liquidity, meaning they either go public or they get acquired. Got it. That's when I've made the money for my fund. Uh. And so... In the meantime, there's all these intermediate things that I can show to prove that I can be good at this. Yeah. So it's just tough to. That's what I mean by the feedback loop is long. But yeah, what for me, I'd love to. I get to meet really interesting, passionate founders and operators yeah. and um, just smart people. I'm like never the smartest person in the room, which I like, mm -hmm. and I get to jump from one sector to another, but get go deep when I want and. Um, like that's a, such a unique opportunity yeah. and techs only in my humble opinion going to impact more and more traditional lines of business right. and so to be able to um, just live and breathe that on a daily basis uh, I don't take that for granted so I'd yeah. love to do this for the next 10, 20, uh, 30 years even wow. and um, you know kind of jam on jam on projects with smart people especially in SoCal Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities here and you would never want to go, I guess, we would call it client side, but um, like go start your own company and, and, and you know, I'm never going to never say yeah. never, I guess. Like if there were an interesting, I, I do get the itch when I meet interesting companies yeah. up in the line, um, people who I, I vibe with and I know um, have strong conviction around. Yeah. Um, of course. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if the right, if the, all the stars align, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say that I would never do it. Um, I hope I get to a point where I can have, again, it's that side hustle kind of mentality. Like, yeah. I think that's where this whole world of our generation of finding employment or just, yeah. you know, we all, we're all so multifaceted and have different interests right. that why define yourself as one thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm a firm believer in that. Um, so 
yeah, I would love to, if, if the opportunity, right opportunity arose with the right group of people, um, be able to scratch that itch. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be close off to it now. Yeah. I feel like, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like it's so, it's kind of difficult these days, actually, um, with, with the newer generations, because in the past, I would say, like, for our parents and things like that, it's, you know, your, your goal is to um, figure out a way to be successful so that you can support your family and yeah. um, hopefully do something that you remotely enjoy doing. But that was more of a luxury than, than anything else. Right. At least I know for my, for, for my parents. For sure. Um, but now, like, we, have, we live in this world where there's so much everywhere. There's so much you could do. And even with, with my siblings, like with, 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 my, uh, with my younger siblings, I see, I see that they're just like, I don't know what to do. Like there's so much, right? I could, um, you know, maybe I do like fashion. Maybe maybe I do want to like be a journalist. Maybe yeah. I do. And so to be able to um, too many to, options yeah, can paralyze you. Exactly. Um, but to be able to get to the point now where we actually have so many options, um, and to even stay at a company for longer than like one to two years, and like uh, you know, want want to jettison. Like that's I think that's the the role that you're in right now. I think that's that's pretty pretty amazing because you do get to kind of be involved and touch all these different factors and continue to learn and let your curiosity um take hold right yeah you say that's true it's true but i'm not going to front and pretend like that's a uh you know rosy all the time like yeah yeah (laughs) there are downsides right sure i'm not going to be an expert um in one sector one function and so there are trade-offs always yeah um but and so it's just about how to find the right balance and actually the the I forget where I read it or who told me, but the, the best advice I've gotten and how to stand out professionally is to not just do one, one have one skill but do, yeah. and do it really well, but almost do two things, um, two different times, have two different skill sets and do them reasonably well. Yeah. And not a lot of, not a lot of people uh, fashion their career around that. And that's that's my new framework of mm-hmm. trying to, to stand out because it's going to be more competitive and I am scared of like the younger generation because they're at a, they're at an advantage yeah. in my mind. <laughs> that's- they're learning things much younger and um, have access to information much younger. I, like you probably were like me, like we did our homework on paper. Yeah. I don't know, <laughs> know if yeah, kids these days like do, that. do their shit on with any sort yeah. of writing utensil right. um, or pencil sharpeners and things like that. Like right. it's a foreign object for them. Right. So um, it's about like staying competitive and being able to be nimble. And I think that's the most important quality is yeah. just willingness to learn and intellectual curiosity. Like right. that's super uh, attractive and appealing to me. Yeah. Um, and that like not everyone I think is, is willing to, to have that. Yeah. So I guess um, if you were to have kids in, in, in the future, right, what would be the advice that you would give them to kind of hopefully be be successful um, from, from what you've seen so far? That's a whole other podcast episode, man. It is, um, it is. Dude, yeah. I don't know. It, it freaks me out, first of all, to think about kids. Cause <laughs> who am I to be um, giving advice to another living being? Um, yeah. But, yeah, you know, I think it is that. It's the, it's the open-mindedness and intellectual curiosity and tangential to the intellectual curiosity, it's the, the persistence to believe in yourself and have that blind faith. Because if you don't, who you know, who else will? Right. Um, and I think that's important. I think like that's that's almost intangible. You can't really you can't really teach that in a class. You have to learn that from. You yeah. have to fail. You have to have some sort of struggle. Yeah. You have to be willing to fail. You have to participate in something outside, you know, with other people and learn like a team sport or start a project and, you know, whatever it is, you just have to be willing to try. I I, I know that's like abstract, but no, but it's true. It's, it's, it's that, it's that curiosity level. And I think that's why it ties well with, um, uh, with kind of everything that we've been talking about is that, um, when you're starting your own company or, you know, whether that is in tech or like whether it's anything else or you're starting something new to be successful at it, you have to be curious, curious and passionate and, and just really want to go 200% at it. Right. Yeah. And then those who are able to do that successfully and to be able to try and fail and like try again, um, those are the folks that hopefully will be able to get to a point where, um, they have other people believe in them. Right. Right. And then join in on, on the cause. Right. So, yeah. Right. And, and by the way, like, you know, and feel free to cut this out, but, like, I also yeah. think that, like, your, um, and I'm going to get more philosophical now and personal, but, yeah. like, I, I think definitions of success and what um, you want to be judged on can vary individual to individual. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with not 
to sticking with one job in my opinion and like if that's yeah, you absolutely. do you right yeah and so absolutely. like th- that's just how that's just probably both of you um our dna and, yeah. and how we how we want to quote unquote succeed right but right. there are if my kid wanted to be the one expert in i don't know like everything from being a doctor or content provider to yeah. a teacher like and just want to own that cool yeah. man like that do do you like I, I there's nothing who am i to say like that's not the right way because that's just whatever you think is yeah. going to make you happy and that's yeah hopefully um you know whatever happiness but like what whatever keeps you going is i think the best way of um scratching that like itch of success or whatever <laughs> success means to you I've used the word itch a lot, I realized, yeah, today. T- tiny Tams. That's what I'm calling it already. Tiny Tams. <laughs> that's going to be... I like that. If I have enough kids to start a sports team, I'll have that's that true. Be a, that's true. a sports team name. Oh, man. And I'm going to blame you on this because I was going to wrap this up, but but there's something really interesting I want to know and, and that we didn't touch on yet that is part of your job and kind of your world mm-hmm. is as an Asian American, um, and it'd be... I feel like uh, additionally interesting if you're if you're female, but as an a- Asian American male in the in the venture capitalist space, mm-hmm. um, uh, what, what's the representation like there actually? Because uh, as far as I know, is more of the finance and hedge fund world. Like yeah. seeing that you know a lot of those guys are just you know white uh, yeah. Caucasian you know uh, males. So right. um, what about in in your world? Like are, are you starting to see? more and more are you one in a very few um yeah where's the representation i, I think it, it was so i get where you're going like for for me specifically there's a there's probably more asian american males in venture mm-hmm. um than the uh than other groups right and yeah. that's actually a very relevant conversation that was this whole um conversation around diversity yeah. and gender and and it's uh prevalent not just in venture it started probably a lot with Uber and what Uber mm-hmm. went through with Susan Fowler and female engineers, which I thought was a great you know thing to happen. Yeah. Um, but and then that started this whole wave, right? And, yeah. and the, uh, you, you know, you, any of your listeners might not know, but also happened in venture. There was a mm-hmm. um, pretty well publicized um, fund that I won't reference, but you can Google it that had their own incidents. And so my point is, like, I actually am a. a <laughs> maybe I'll offend people, but like a fan of what's been going on in terms of like bringing more awareness mm-hmm. to this issue. Yeah. And, um, as an, as a, whatever you want to First call it, inaugural. a male, uh, just a me as a person. Yeah. Um, um, I want to be an ally to, uh, folks who feel like they don't have access to whatever they yeah. are trying to get, whether that be professionally in venture or, yeah. you know, roles in entertainment or whatever. Um, because, uh, you know, you just kind of root for the underdog, and like yeah. you kind of think that if they they have the drive to want to achieve their goal, yeah, um, then let's help empower those individuals to yeah. do so. So, anyways, um, there's a lot of not a lot, but enough Asian American males for it. To, there's not going to be any sort of hashtag uh, movement <laughs> for getting more Asian American yes. males into venture. Yeah. I guess is my point. Yeah. Um, but uh, I can do more as just from where I sit as an ally to try to, um, you know, take those late phone calls at night for that, uh, individual who is trying to get into venture and yeah. doesn't have the network. Yeah. And, and I try to do that really. And, and That's so, awesome. you know, that hopefully more and more folks do that and it just, it builds momentum and yeah. then, you know, five, 10 years later we see the, the fruits of that labor. Yeah. No, that's great. I wouldn't say like either of us are both at the ground floor per se anymore at this point, but uh, you know I, we're still not the uh, you know the the CEOs and the you know the the top top level yet that we're both on on track to get there. But that being said, like I, I feel like we see more and we experience more um, uh, on a more day to day front, especially and and hear about more things. And I'm just glad that you know that people are being called out and um, hopefully more so in, in, in a truthful and, and, and responsible way. But, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that being said, I hope for both our industries that we're continuing to find people to 
grow uh, and be able to do things that are passionate and but helpful in both our, our industries. And that's the thing. It's like representation isn't just about being represented, just be represented, but it's that there are people there who are really great at what they do and really talented, and they happen to be Asian American or African American or, uh, or Latin American or uh, whatever it is, um, but that uh, for one reason or another don't get certain advantages based off of whether it's their gender or their or their background or their culture or, or whatever it is so yeah it's like however we can hopefully help in support of that i think hopefully the next generation in the next like 10 to 20 years um we'll see more of that especially in spaces that were traditionally uh much more dominated by not other that. people yeah not that yeah. not that indeed but cool. um, but yeah well, Mike, thanks for thanks for joining on this like the this the first inaugural first uh, ever podcast for for Clark and Chloe. It's an um, honor. Where yeah, if people want to follow you or they want to learn more about you, or hear more about you. You know where where should they go? Uh, um, mm, good question. I'm not very good with my online. I guess just my Twitter, really. Yeah, just Michael D Tam. Okay, that's all I have. So that's at Michael D Tam uh, on Twitter, and I'll. All right, sweet. Thank well, you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, well, we want to say thank you again to Michael Tam for joining us on the inaugural episode of In Progress presented by Clark and Chloe. You know what? Listening to, uh, to, to that again, um, it reminds me of really how talented uh, he is as, as an individual. Um, like I said, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be friends with him for um, a good few years now, but he's one of those people that... When you meet him, you can see his charisma, um, his intelligence, and, and all those things that, you know, this guy is going to do some really special things, and, uh, you know, we, we here can't wait to, uh, to see uh, what he has up next. Um, so, uh, Michael Tam, thank you again for being on the show. Good luck with everything. Uh, to all of our listeners out there, we want to hear from you. So, if you have any questions for us here or whether it's for mike please feel free to send them to in progress at clark and com, and uh you know we'll try and read through as many of them as we can and uh also get back to um some of the i guess more important ones actually we'll, we'll try and get back to everyone um but uh no no promises um also uh we want to hear from you about uh, people that you think should be on the show. Uh, so we have a great list of, uh, of people that uh, we've talked to already and that we're going to talk to. But, um, you know, part of this is building a community where we get to find out more about, you know, people who are really going to be rising stars, really going to be um, headed to the top of their field. Um, and we really just want to hear as many stories as possible so that we can share as many stories as possible. Be sure to go to ClarkandChloe.com for, well, just amazing content. And uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook. Uh, it's Clark and Chloe. And then also uh, Instagram and Twitter. It is at ClarkXChloe. Um, all the up-to-date information will for sure be there. And um, subscribe to this podcast uh, on uh, iTunes, podcasts, wherever podcasts are sold and found, all that good stuff. Uh, that being said, this is Kelly Lee. You have been listening to In Progress, presented by Clark and Chloe. And until next time, that's a wrap.